0: Okay. So we're mic'd up. All right. So you're, you're getting a card that's coming around. The first, this this quadrant here, step one, right? This Bible Times, author's intended meaning, that's where it says contextualize truth. Truth. Contextualize truth. So what's the truth in its context, in its original context? Um, it says under there, the author's intended meaning, the aim. See, you also notice it says, this is a time-bound audience. This is an ancient audience. So because there's 2,000 years of history, let's say between Mark and us, 2,000 years of history. A lot has happened in 2000. Our country is barely how old? How old is our country? 300 some years? So 2,000 years of history has happened. So lot's changed. Okay? And so when we read the Bible and then we read it with all these modern ideas into the text, we might be doing it a disservice. So, what we want to do is we want to say, okay, what's the contextualized truth? What's the the author's intended meaning? What did it mean to them? And uh, we need to know the historical context. We need to know the literary context. And then we can move up. Go to the next one. Search comparable uh, parallel scriptures. How does this relate to other sections in the Bible? Okay. And then move over to decontextualized truth. Once we understand the truth, then we can say, okay, here's the truth in its original context, what it meant to them. Okay, maybe this is what it means universally. This is, what, this is the timeless truth or principle that's coming out of it. So what does this mean? Uh, what's being taught? And then after that, then we can move down to, to recontextualize truth. Um, applying it today. How is it significant to me? What what's the Spirit saying to this to me through through this passage based on what God intended for it? Um, so that's when we can get specific specific and apply it to us is when we've gone through this process. Now, for some of you this may be like the first time you've heard anything like this. Um, and, and it can it can seem overwhelming, but if you begin to start thinking this way, in fact I would keep this in your Bible and just whenever you read. Just review the three steps. And, and it, you'll begin to train yourself to think that way, to be, begin to ask questions. Okay, what's going on there? What is, it, what is it like to be a woman in the first century? What's it like to be a shepherd in the first century? What, what was a Pharisee? So when you start asking those questions, then you, then you start to un- unlock several things in the text. Okay, so that's your, uh, fancy, here's a fancy word for what we just described. Uh, hermeneutics. Or exegesis, hermeneutics is that basically the, the it's the study of um, the, these principles of interpretation. Exegesis, which is the way we study the text, the way we is is means to literally draw out. So we're trying to draw out what God meant for the text. So that's that's how we study. That's what we do. Um, and and so, with that being said, let's let's jump to Mark. So turn to Mark, chapter one. Verse one Mark one, verse one. I'm going to give you some things that um, basic introduction of Mark. Um, okay, so here, so basically I'm going to give you four things, and, and they should be on the screens if everything works out the way it's supposed to work out. There we go. So the first one is this, the Gospel. So when I talk about Gospels, this is the Gospel of Mark, and you've heard of the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Those are Gospels. Now, that has become a genre because of these four letters, um, so it's, it's become its own literary genre. And it, within the gospel, the gospels are mainly a narrative about who? Jesus. Jesus. Oh, um, and so, but it, within this narrative genre, there are several different kinds. There's parables, there's hyperbole, there's, there's, um, there's different things. There's, so, so you have speeches, you have sermons. And so this is what Grant Osborne says about genre. I think this is really good genre is more than a means of classifying literary types it is a it is an okay big word epistemological tool so epistemology is the is the the study of how we learn and how we know so do you under, do you know how you know things Pe- there's people way smarter than us that that study this stuff and and that's called epistemology so he says genre understanding the genre of a text he says basically is a tool for unlocking the meaning of the individual text. So when you read Revelation, you need to rec- recognize that's a different kind of genre than Paul's letter to Ephesus. Paul's letter to Ephesus is different than, um, than, uh, let's say, Genesis, which is a narrative text. And then you have poetry, which is different. You read poetry different than you read a letter. You're In poetry, you're allowed to have descriptive and, and, uh, um, all this, these huge, you know, descriptive, I can't think of another word, um, terms. So you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to um, use all kinds of forms in, in different li- genres. So genre is important. And, and the Gospels are, a, are basically a collection of teachings and events arranged into a historical narrative about the life and ministry of Jesus. But the word Gospel actually uh, means what? What does it literally mean? Okay, good news. And, and this is an interesting term. So when we hear the word gospel, we always associate it with Jesus or church or something. But in first century Rome, gospel had lots of political, it had social, it had spiritual implications. So um, the, when, when the first century Roman world, when, whenever the word gospel often used okay, in, in everyday settings, it was always referring to the emperor. The good news of of Caesar, his birth, his um, his uh, his uh, coming of age, his his um, succession to the throne, his conquering other right. So they would they would proclaim the good news of Caesar and Caesar or or, or the emperor was was the guy. He they, basically he considered himself God. The people saw him as God. He was to give life to the Roman people, and peace, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So, so the, the, the emperor was, um, was seen as, as the one who provides all of that. So when Jesus comes in, okay, and he now takes that word that's commonly used in that, in that other context, and then he says, repent and, and hear the gospel. Okay, The gospel of God, the kingdom of God, is at hand. That's Mark 1, and we're going to get into that, that verse. Um, Jesus is usurping that term, he's taking that term, changing it, rearranging it, and saying, "That's, that's me. I'm, I'm the true gospel." Um, so so you need to understand the, the context that helps us understand when, when that word is used, that's, what, that's what's going on in, in some of the hearers' minds. Now let's deal with the author. Um, is Mark, obviously. It should be the next slide. We believe that it's John Mark okay um, the guy who was with Paul and Barnabas on one of the missionary journeys um, um, but what's interesting is that Mark bases his letter off of Peter's sermons and influence so we, we, we believe that Mark and Peter went to Rome some some at some point in, in the early 40s and they and they had a ministry there maybe late 40s I don't know. Um, but they had a ministry there, and and so Mark got to hear Peter preaching on a regular basis. And so we think this is where he has come. This is where his uh, his his understanding of Jesus, the the life of Jesus, has come from Peter's examples. And and now the reason that Mark is a credible person to write is because we believe Mark was actually there with with Jesus during that time. Um, and so. It, it, we, it's said to believe that it's John Mark's family who owns the upper room that Jesus and his disciples um, were, were there for the Last Supper. And it, it, it's possibly John Mark who is the young man. It's, the only account is in Mark where this, this, when, when Jesus is arrested in the garden and there's a young man who's grabbed and, the, and they grab him and, and he gets out of it and he runs off naked. Okay? The only person who tells that story is Mark so? It's a, there's a there's a decent chance that Mark was a young man in somewhere at, close to the upper room, followed Jesus and his disciples to the uh, to the to the Mount of Olives, where he was arrested and, and 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 so he was present. So he he's a reliable witness. But more than that, um, there's a there's a church historian, a church father named papias He was a bishop of Areopolis. And he his ministry was between 95 and 120. Okay? So 95 would have been the year, right around the, the year that John wrote Revelation. So we're talking he was he was alive. He said he'd be born in, in 70. Um, and so he would have been alive during this time. And he wrote uh, uh, that that basically Mark learned this from Peter. We don't have his work, apparently it was lost, but a guy named Eusebius in the early 300s, had it. And he quotes he quotes Papias uh, in this statement. He says this, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. Mark made no mistake in thus recording such things just as he remembered them. So because of these two early church fathers, we're, we're, tradition is is pretty set that Mark is the um, the author of this, and that he's influenced by Peter's experiences. Okay, next is, is the audience and the date. Um, now, when it comes to the date, we, we, we don't know. Um, most likely, Mark is writing to um, people in Rome, Christians in Rome who are living in stressful times. A lot was going on in in the 50s and the 60s in Rome. Some really, really bad emperors like Nero and Domitian were, were at the helm. And let me tell you, th- there, is no, there is no world power. There is no um, king or president or in, the, in the world today that's anything like these, these guys. Um, and so, but here's our best guess, is that Mark wrote this in. This is my best guess after reading about five different commentaries on the date. It's either in the late 40s, the 50s. The 60s, but sometime before 1970, or AD 70, 1970. <laughs> Definitely before 1970. Um, sometime before 70 AD, which is when, which is when Jerusalem was destroyed. So um, there's a lot of debate about it because it's whether or not, did Peter write, sorry, did Mark write this before Peter died? Peter died approximately in 64. He, he could have died when Nero um, blamed all the Christians for the great fire of Rome. And he burned a lot of them at the stake and he, used, he literally set them on fire to light up the town. He set Christians on stakes, let them on, set them on fire and lit up the town. And he blamed the Christians for the fire that he set himself. And, and so there's, there's actually historians that talk about it. Not Christian historians, other historians <laughs> that say that Nero went after the Christians and blamed the Christians. And, and, and that's when persecution went crazy. So Peter died right around that same year. And so there's debate on whether or not it was before or after that. There's also debate on whether or not Mark is the first gospel or the second gospel, uh, or if it was Matthew, um, but it's way above my pay grade. So the main point is this, that that Mark wrote within, okay, at most, 30 plus years from when Jesus' life and ministry. So what that means is there were, like it says, there were living witnesses that could have said, no, I was there, and that's not what happened. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that were 500, 1 Corinthians would have been somewhere around the mid-40s, um, that were 500 witnesses still alive. So, so we know that that's possible, that lots of people could have gotten his letters and said, okay, that's not true. Um, but it, it's always been a credible, credible letter. So lastly is this, is the title, which takes us to Mark, Mark 1, verse 1. And I'll end with this. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, in in ancient times, you know they didn't have books with, with covers and titles on the front page, and so a lot of times the the beginning of the letter letter was meant to um, introduce the the text, introduce the the story. Basically, here's what this is about. Here's why I'm writing. And so he says, he says that this is the beginning of the gospel. Of Jesus Christ so the question is why does he say beginning um, why does he, why would he use the word beginning and what he means by that is, is not this is the beginning of my letter what he means by that this whole letter the whole letter is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God well here's here's why that's significant it's significant significant for a couple reasons Okay the first is this it helps explain why Mark ends the book so abruptly okay in in, in mark 16 verse 8 basically here's what's happening it, the, the last verse of the book okay in fact if you want to turn there flip there mark 16 verse 8 I'm going to um, tease you with something that we won't deal with until April <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. The last verse of, of Mark's letter is 16.8, which says, And they went out, meaning the women, um, from the tomb. Well, the, the disciples went out from, from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, you notice there are other verses there. So why would I say that's the last verse? Because those verses don't belong here, actually. That's the teaser. You'll have to wait till April to figure out why. Um, you, let, let me say this: This isn't the only text in the Bible that actually that's in the Bible that shouldn't be in the Bible. So what I'm saying is Mark didn't write those words that follow. That's what I'm saying. No, okay, we're good. Um, and I have good reason to think that. There's also a section in John two, uh, John eight, actually, but but we'll we'll talk we'll talk about that later. So. This helps understand, when, when he says that, this is the beginning. This whole letter is the beginning of the gospel. It helps explain, okay, this is why he ends so abruptly, because it's kind of weird the way he ended. Um, the second re- the second reason, which is more significant to us, is that <clears throat> Mark doesn't finish the story because Jesus' resurrection is not the end, but the beginning. It was meant to leave the reader's... Um, Believing and understanding that the gospel of Jesus continues with them wherever they go, and so that's that's where you and I come in. Um, we 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 really believe and really want you to to um, abide in Jesus. This is this is one of our values to have life in Christ, uh, to abide in a life giving relationship with Jesus, and we want you to. Um, spend some time in this book, and so we've we've come up with a um, kind of a reading plan for the whole semester uh, that has broken up in different weeks. This is week one, and week one only has one day, um, but the rest of the week have mostly five. Some have four, and it's kind of uh, we designed this to um, so that if you started reading a few of the verses. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then by Friday you can come back and read the whole thing as, as a reflection. We also have some questions that you can just ask yourself as you're reading through. Um, these, these can work with any of the verses that you read. So, we're going to pass this out. Let this kind of go around. And then, um, back here. Okay that is that's all I have but here, here, here's what I want to say um, that you know we, we really do want to challenge you to spend some time in God's word and, and this is just a practical way to do that um, if you don't have something you're reading already I mean commit to this and commit to it I mean it''s, it's sometimes it's only two or three verses a day sometimes it's Fifteen verses a day, but that's really not that much. Um, and there's a lot that there's a lot that you can get out of just soaking in a few verses at a time. So, with that being said, I'm gonna we're gonna take a two-minute break, and then Drew's gonna come up and and he's gonna walk through this process that I just talked about. All right.
1: All right. Uh, we're going to get started because, uh, because Scott doesn't believe in the power of prayer and <laughs> refused to open us with that. I'm going to take care of that for us real quick, so uh, let, me, let me pray real quick, just because so, really, as we are about to jump into the text, I'd love to, I'd love to kind of pray over that, and uh, yeah, we'll do that. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for um, community, I thank you for the people in this room, and... Just get excited about the chance to get back together with them and, and study your word together. Uh, my prayer is what it always is, that your Holy Spirit would, um, would be here and that he would do his work in our hearts as we read your word, that it would transform us and that it would make us more like your son. Um, and I ask you that in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so normally what, what takes place on a night like this is Uh, I I think Scott kind of referenced it, basically this, we'd be doing this in two parts where one of us would cover the text for the first half and then the next um, one would do this and kind of move us into our application time. Tonight because we had a bunch of introductory stuff to get into, um, Scott did all of that and I'm going to be trying to do all of this. In 35 minutes, so buckle up, because um, we're going to try to move really quick. And and I actually also tonight this will be a little different. We'll probably we might do this for the first few weeks, um, um, but for tonight especially, I want to actually kind of show you where we are in the process as I'm studying. So I'll kind of point that out as we go. So anybody want to guess where we're going first? There. Okay. So starting at the starting point in Mark 1, we're going to be covering the first 15 verses of Mark. Tonight, um, I'm going to have my man Eric here be my reader. And so, Eric, you can actually go ahead and read just the very first verse, Mark 1, verse 1, as we're talking through what the original audience would have heard when Mark was reading this. The
2: beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the
1: God. Okay, I'm going to have you actually go take that one volume level up, all right, and then do that again. <laughs>
2: The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. All
1: right. That sounds like when you're saying the beginning of the good news, it sounds like you should be talking a little bit more like that as opposed to the good news about Jesus the Son of God. Um, so anyway, thank you, Eric. Everyone's real excited for me to pick them to read next week, right? Um, yes. Yes, hey, read for me. I'll mock you in front of everybody. Um, all right. So right off the bat, Mark is basically telling us where he's going with us, or where he's going with this story. And as Scott said, more than likely, that's the title. Gospel of Mark would not have been written on the top of this letter when it's there. All right? Uh, more than likely, verse one is the title, and what he's doing is from the very beginning, Mark is letting us in on the secret that nobody in his story really knows for the first half of the book. Even those closest to Jesus don't know this. Um, And it's going to get interesting. You're going to see um, Jesus is even kind of aloof about it. But he says right from the beginning, and actually we'll see several things in these first 15 verses, in which we as the readers have the privilege of seeing getting inside information that nobody else knew at the time. And so this is going to be a big deal. This is actually a really big question through the whole first half of the book. Um, People are going to be asking this over and over again. Who is this guy? Or or they'll ask questions like, like, Who has the power to do things like this? Or who have we ever heard teach with this kind of authority? Or who does he think he is to forgive sins like that? You're going to see question after question after question all moving towards establishing what Mark just told us. Establishing the identity of Jesus. In fact, the book of Mark at its most simplest can be broken up into two two points basically. Here's an outline in two halves. All right. The first half. is simply this: Mark one, all the way through chapter eight, verse thirty-one, and it is this: Jesus is the Messiah. So, if you're reading, most of translations are going to say Jesus Christ or Jesus is the Christ. That that word literally, the the newer NIV actually translates it. It literally means the Anointed One, the Messiah. So, anytime you see the word Christ, it's Jesus Messiah, and, and that is what. Mark is moving to, and that is what he's going to be showing in all of his stories about Jesus, his actions and his statements and everything that he's doing, and the questions that people are asking is saying this, Jesus is the Messiah. We'll get to what the second point of Mark's outline is in just a bit. Now he says this, it's the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, but I don't think he actually means beginning as in like out of nowhere. Like this is kind of out of the blue. This is something completely different, completely new. Uh, the reason I don't think he says that is because of his very first words right after the title. And so, Eric, read those verses two through three.
2: As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, and make
1: straight the path for you. Okay. So, so this is what he says right off like his opening words of the gospel as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. So, so Mark is saying that the story I'm about to tell you is rooted in the bigger story of scripture. It's actually flowing out of that story and so that's where he starts. He references, he says, it's written in Isaiah the prophet and that's true, he's quoting Isaiah but he's actually not just quoting Isaiah here. He's actually quoting Isaiah 40 and he's combining it with two other passages of scripture. Exodus 23, I think is what I got. Um, Exodus 23 and Malachi 3. Um, So he's combining these three together and and what scholars think he's doing is he's actually finding kind of three major sections of scripture. Exodus, towards the beginning, the Pentateuch, the major prophets in Isaiah who is the main representative of the major prophets and the minor prophets in Malachi. All three of them together are all speaking towards the coming of the Messiah. And so he's showing how all the scriptures kind of combine together to do that. Exodus, if I'm dealing with him chronologically, Exodus 23, the reference is when God is sending his people out into the wilderness and he says, my angel will go before you. In the Greek, the word angel literally can also be translated messenger. My messenger will go before you. So, the angel of God, that's what Exodus 23 is about. Isaiah 40 is about the day that God is going to redeem His people out of exile and make everything right again and set Himself up as Lord. And It says in Isaiah 40, Herald the good news. Um, And so that's probably where where Mark is even kind of going with Isaiah here with the good news. Malachi 3 is the really interesting one, though. And and that's what what I want to read to you real quick. I want us to make sure we catch Malachi 3. This is what it says, Malachi 3, verse 1. I don't know if I got that up there, yeah. Um, Malachi 3, verse 1 says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you would delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord or Yahweh of hosts. So this is the message Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and after him, God's coming. After him, The Lord is coming, and so be ready for this. Now, who is the messenger is the question. Who is the messenger that it's talking about in this passage? Malachi actually answers that question in the very last two verses of his book. So, Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6 says this, Behold, I will send you who? Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So, he says that the the messenger that is coming is Elijah. This is the one to be looking for. Now, this would have been not just in our old testament but in the jewish scriptures this was and still is today if you're jewish the very last scripture inspired by god this was it isaiah 4 verses 5 or malachi 4 verses 5 through 6 we just read it And so it comes at the very end of their book and most likely probably the last prophet to speak. After Malachi utters these words, it is 400 years of silence. And the big debate and the big question, and actually most of them just believed it, that God had withdrawn His Spirit from Israel, withdrawn His Spirit from the world at that time. Because He's been speaking to us for years, all the way starting back in Adam and all the way through to Malachi. He's been speaking to us through Moses, writing the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, through David, through the prophets, and then all of a sudden it just stops and there's nothing. But we got this one last little promise that I'm going to send my prophet Elijah, and after Elijah comes, then I'm coming then God Himself will come. And so the people looked for this. They longed for this. They could not wait for this day when Elijah would come back because they knew when he came back that something new was going to take place, that God Himself was coming. Eric read Mark uh, 1, verses 4-6. through 6.
2: Their sins, that were baptized by hand in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with
1: a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Okay, so so catch this here. He says this. John, we'll we'll get back to kind of the baptism and ministry, but I want you to catch that last verse. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt. Now, this is kind of strange, because Mark moves pretty quick, and he gets into some details here, but you can tell he's ready to get to the action. He doesn't, unlike Luke, spend any time talking about John the Baptist's background. Doesn't tell you where he came from, doesn't tell you how long he's been doing ministry, doesn't tell you who his parents are, doesn't tell you that he's actually related to Jesus as Luke wants to make sure to do, doesn't do any of that, but for whatever reason, he wants to talk about his wardrobe. (laughs) right? Wants to talk about his diet and wardrobe. Why? That's a question that needs to be asked when you read the scriptures. Why would the writer choose to talk about this when there's so many other things he could have been writing about? He chooses to talk about this. And, and I always like, as a kid, I just always thought it meant that John was like half crazy, right? He, uh, <laughs> Like he, he's a good dude, says a lot of great things, but like you don't want to be like in an alley with this guy. He eats, you know, <laughs> like he eats bugs and stuff, you know. And so, so why does why does John, why does Mark want to make sure to tell you this? You don't you don't see this in any of the gospels. Too many people describing what somebody wears. Here's why, because the clothing that he's describing are the exact same clothes we see Elijah wear in Second Kings one. He's giving you a clue as to who John the Baptist is. He's, he's hinting at what's taking place here. And Matthew, actually, just to make sure we're clear, Jesus says in the book of Matthew, John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. That's what he says. Now, we don't mean like reincarnated, like Elijah comes back as John the Baptist. We mean the prophet that will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's how Luke describes it. That he comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so Mark wants to make sure that you know this is happening. Now, catch what Mark is doing here. Mark just took the very last words of the Jewish scriptures and in 400 years of nothing... And Mark picks his story up right there from those words and goes in. He takes the very last words uttered by God before everything closes up, the heavens close up and we hear nothing else. And Mark says, no, no, the story continues from there. In fact, we're getting to the good stuff, is what Mark says. We're getting to the climax of the story. And I love that idea that Mark takes the end and moves into where we are now. Now, as a part of John's ministry, one of the major things he's doing is he's baptizing people. That's why he gets the name, you know, John the Baptist, in case you weren't catching that one. (laughs) He, that wasn't his denomination, just in case any of you guys were wondering. Um, so he, he, he's baptizing people out there, and this would have actually been a little bit strange because baptism was not something that a normal Jew just went and did. Baptism was what you did if you were a Gentile and you wanted to convert to a Jew, to become a Jew. That and circumcision. You had to do both. Baptism was the easier part. Okay? Um, so, you, you, that's what you did if you wanted to convert to Judaism. That's not what you did if you were already a Jew. Now, if you were a Jew and you had defiled yourself, um, uh, like you made yourself ceremonially unclean and unfit to be in the presence of God's people and to come to the temple to worship, then you would go through kind of a ritual cleansing, a ritual bathing. But, like, the normal Jew doesn't get baptized. And so, when John stands up, and says, you need to be baptized, repent and be baptized, he's making a statement. He's saying that you are basically not in any better spot than the Gentiles. Something new needs to take place in you. Like there needs to be a renewal, not just of specific defiled people, the whole nation. Something new needs to be done here. There needs to be renewal. Now you'd think people would get really offended by this, and I imagine some people did, but it says here that like the people come out in droves, like they're, they're just like rushing to him to hear John the crazy bug eater yell at them, right? And, and to get baptized and they're confessing their sins, but he says when you do that you get forgiven. And so it's this amazing thing he's doing out of the Jordan, but he's not just baptizing, he's also preaching. He's proclaiming some good news and here's the main message that he's proclaiming in verses 7 through 8. Eric,
2: With
1: water, but he with the All right. So, real quickly, and then we'll just kind of move through this. But um, he says this: I bab after one is coming, one mightier than me, and, and I'm not even worthy to un to to bend down and un- uh, untie the straps of his sandals, which would have been for the lowliest of servants in the house. And and John says, I'm not at that level compared to this guy, and here's why, because I'm baptizing you with water, this baptism for repentance uh, and, and for kind of confession, forgiveness of sins, but, but he's going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's a radical statement, because in the Old Testament, nobody ever had any ability to do that before. First of all, in the Old Testament, nobody had the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Like all you could ever get in the Holy Spirit was what we call the filling of the Spirit, which is where He comes on you temporarily to kind of empower you for a task. Nobody, nobody before John the Baptist starts saying this had ever experienced the indwelling, which is where he takes up permanent residence in you. And nobody, even those who did get the Spirit, none of them could bring or give the Spirit to anybody else. Like that wasn't them. And so when John says somebody's coming, like this is something only God can do. And he says there's somebody who's coming who's going to give you the Spirit, who's going to bring the Spirit. That's radical. That's unheard of. And again, the talk was that the Spirit's been gone, that God withdrew him. Uh, but now John says, someone's coming who can bring him. Read verses 9 through 11. At that
2: time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom so my love. With you I am willed
1: Okay, so there's a word there in, in this version, what Eric just read says, just as Jesus was coming out of the water. In, in the Greek, it's euthus, and, and it means immediately. That is one of Mark's favorite words in all, like all scripture. Okay, so it's used in the New Testament, this word 51 times, 41 of them are Mark. So he uses it over and over and over again, and it's a way of kind of pushing the pace of his letter, and you'll just see it over and over again, immediately this happened, immediately this happened, immediately this happened, and he's just trying to move us forward in the text. So here's a question, if John is baptizing for the confession and the repentance for your sins, the forgiveness of your sins, then why is Jesus getting baptized? Why does He go out and get baptized if we believe that He's sinless, the sinless Son of God? Then what's He doing out there? And, and this is one that, that there's no like, consensus answer on. People don't have this all exactly figured out. Some think that He's doing it to set an example for us. Like this is what our Lord did, and so this is what we do. Some people think he's doing to show kind of the continuity between John's ministry and his, that where John's leaves off in the baptism of Jesus, Jesus picks up, that they kind of flow together. Um, it could be some truth to, to both of those things. Uh, I, I think what, what is probably going on is even though Je- Jesus has no sin to confess or repent of, what he does when he moves down is he identifies himself. With the sinful Israel that needs to be renewed, and identifies himself with sinful humanity as a whole. Um, that's what I think is going on, and saying, I'm, I'm in on this renewal project. I'm in to help humanity, to help Israel become what it is meant to be. It says that immediately, that's that word, immediately when, he, when Jesus does this, he saw the heavens torn open. So not just kind of open up, but torn open, implying basically this, that the 400 years of silence are done. That God is now breaking his way into history and speaking and and revealing himself and showing himself. But this is kind of what's interesting. It says, when Jesus came up, he saw heaven opened. And from from what we kind of understand what we get, nobody else does. Maybe actually John. In John 1... um, In John, yeah, in the Gospel of John, chapter one, John the Baptist will say, "I did not, I did not know that Jesus was the Messiah until I saw the 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 Spirit descending on him like a dove." And so that leads us to think that maybe John the Baptist and Jesus saw this take place, but nobody else. Again, we get the we get the special information that nobody else watching even gets at this time. uh, it, it's kind of, like I said, I think next week we'll get into to what's known as the Messianic secret. Mark's Messianic secret. Um, read, let's see, yeah, read verses 12 through 13,
2: Eric. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being
1: tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Okay, so, at once Jesus was sent out, actually that's, again, the word immediately. He was sent out into, and and the word is actually, if I remember right, it's this like thrown out. ESV will say driven out. The Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, and he's out there, and he's tempted. Now Mark Mark doesn't take any time describing this event like Matthew and Luke do. He just says it happened, and then moves us to kind of the next thing, which is what he's really wanting to touch on here, and that is 14 and 15. So read those for us. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee,
2: proclaiming the
1: The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Okay. Um, So repent and believe the good news. It says he went into the towns preaching the good news of God. Good news is? Literally, that it's the word, euangelion, the gospel. He preached the gospel of God. And this is the gospel, he says. The gospel is this. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's what it is. Now, I don't know if you've heard this. This is, this is a, a statement I've heard multiple times from, uh, from preachers, actually. Preachers and ministers, and that is this. What did Jesus talk about more than anything else while He was on this earth? The answer, and I've heard this over and over again, money. Jesus talked about money more than anything else in His entire ministry. Um, and that's just not true. Okay. The last person I heard it say it was a campus minister from OU, which totally makes sense. Um, so I, I remember hearing that. And, and actually it does, it, it, it rings true. It's almost true. If, if you start to read it enough, because Jesus perhaps, and I haven't done like the actual study where I'm counting the words, but I think you could argue that Jesus uses money or economic imagery more than anything else. But he's almost always using economic imagery to describe to to give a parable of, to give a metaphor for the kingdom, which is what he talks about more than anything else in his ministry. What does Jesus talk about more than anything else? What does Jesus say is the gospel when he shows up and talks? What does he say, man, i got to get into the villages so I can preach this over and over again, the kingdom? The kingdom, the kingdom, and it is central to his ministry, it is central to the gospel of Mark, and so we got to make sure that we understand it if we're going to be able to move forward in in Mark's gospel. And here's where we move, we've just studied the text, tried to get what Mark was saying and and the background and the context, now we're going to start talking about a timeless truth out of it, and specifically we're going to wrestle with this idea of the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? And how do the scriptures talk about it? So, I don't need you to answer. I don't need you to raise your hands. I just need you to think for a second. If I asked you to explain what is the kingdom of God, could you do it? What is the kingdom of God? See, because I've, I've actually asked this question a number of times and, and gotten a number of kind of blank stares back from Christians as I describe this. Um... And kind of like a well, it's sort of like, mm, I mean, it's you know, it's kind of the mm, you know, um, and, and a little bit of that stuff. And 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 so think about this for a second. Number one thing, as as far as I can tell, the number one thing Christ talked about on the earth is something that Christians don't know how to describe. Jesus talks all about it. Jesus followers don't know what it is. Does something sound a little weird? about that to you? Like, like, that we struggle to get a picture of what the kingdom is. What, what does he mean when he says the kingdom of God is at hand? Now, we do get a, a little bit of a pass because the talk in the Gospels about the kingdom can sometimes seem a little bit nebulous. And it can seem a little bit like hard to get our minds around. So here's some of the things that Jesus says about the kingdom. He says, you know that it's come when you see me casting out demons. Do we see Jesus casting out demons? Yes, which means the kingdom has come. And then, though, he goes and he turns around and he tells his disciples, you know what you need to pray for? You need to pray that the kingdom would come. Oh, wait a second, Jesus. I thought you already said that it was already... So, so this is some of the stuff that we kind of get. He'll, he'll say things when the Pharisees ask him, so where is this kingdom that you keep talking about? Explain. He'll say things like, you can't really observe its coming it's in your midst. Oh, that clears things up. <laughs> right? And a lot of times we see Jesus saying, like in those parables, when he's using money imagery, he'll say this, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom is like, the kingdom is like, the kingdom is like, but he never actually steps down and says, the kingdom of God is this, 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 and this. We, don't, we never get like a perfect you know, two-sentence definition of what the kingdom is is we get a lot of, let me, let me kind of explain the angles of it. Let me kind of tell you, give you hints around it. Here's one of the reasons I think that he doesn't give like a straightforward this is what it is, is because his audience may not have needed it that much. Like I think that they actually, in fact I can tell you, they already have an idea. When Jesus comes and he says the kingdom of God is at hand, they don't go, huh. Like I wonder, I wonder what he's trying to say by that. Like I wonder what the metaphor is that he's getting at when he says that. No, no, no. When he says the kingdom of God is here, they have a very clear image in their head of what he's talking about. And I want to try and kind of help you. What was the Jewish concept of the kingdom? We have to do a very brief history lesson here if we want to make sure that we get this. Okay. So, the Bible starts, Genesis 1, so yeah. Very brief. We're just going to start at the very beginning. Um, Genesis 1, God creates the earth and he creates human beings and the idea when, when God creates the earth is that he rules over the earth for his glory, for his joy but he rules through human beings who he made in his own image. This is what it says, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, that he made them in his image. And then he says, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. So they, human beings are meant to be ruling and caring for God's earth on his behalf as a representation of his rule. But of course, they rebel, they sin against him, they blow it. And, and one of the major themes of scripture, if not, some would argue the main theme of scripture... The main story is the story of God working to reclaim His rightful rule in the world. That we see Him moving all through Scripture to do that. I know that sounds a little strange because we believe already that God has rule over the world. But we're talking about the visible and the witnessed and, and, and the submitted to reign of God all over the earth. So the best example of this, or what was supposed to be the best example of this, was Israel. God gets Israel and they're going to be a picture of what it looks like when God rules the world and when he rules properly through a given people. So he's got his chosen people, his special people, Israel. The problem is they mess up over and over and over again and they do not give a very good picture. And they are filled with this long line of awful kings who are supposed to be ruling like God, who are supposed to be kind of ruling his people on his behalf, and none of them are doing it well. And so it's this mess all the way until towards the end when they end up getting punished and sent away into exile. And everything looks like it's fallen apart. And it just didn't work out the way we had hoped it was. It wasn't. But, but there were these prophecies that were taking place As Israel was getting ready to get crushed by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And then these prophecies that were taking place while they were away in exile in Babylon going, where do we go wrong? And is this ever going to get back to what it was supposed to be? There were these prophecies that told about a day when God would come and he would set his rule back up amongst his people and he was going to establish this kingdom that was going to last forever and when he did that it wouldn't be like all the bad kings it would be him as the king and so he would establish justice and righteousness and peace and he would bring victory to the nation this nation that was for much of its history under oppression by foreign armies. When Mark is writing, it's under the oppression of Rome when Jesus comes. And, and so he, he would kind of set them back up and, and they would talk about it being like David's kingdom again. Only better because it's going to last forever. And you actually get to see it. Now I could read, um, I could read all kinds of prophecies to you about this. But I'm just going to give you one real quick that's a good kind of representative of it. It's Isaiah 9. And I think that's on, your, on the screen there for you. But hold on, wait for me. Alright, Isaiah 9. Now this is usually kind of read as a Christmas text, right? This is, you'll recognize the first verse of this. Um, but this is like a, we need, this, we need this hope text for the people of Israel. Says this, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now that's kind of weird names to give to a little kid, right? Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Okay, that's, that's a weird, already dad? You already get the dad title, right? Um, unless something different is going on than just a regular little boy being born. Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh will do this. And so remember that the people who've been oppressed and who've been without a good king, without a king at all really, a true king for a long time, they are looking forward to this day when God is going to come back and He's going to set up His kingdom again and He's going to make things right and He's going to make Israel go back to the top. He's going to set them back on top like it was when David was ruling and they're going to rule over their enemies and they're going to oppress all of their uh, uh, they're they're going to be the ones victorious over them instead of being the ones always defeated by them. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says the kingdom of God is at hand and they have an immediate image in their head. It's finally here. Well, some of them. If they trusted him. If they believed him. Because he wasn't actually the first one to, to show up and say I'm the Messiah, by the way. There were other ones who did, and whenever they did, they always got a big crowd around them because people were so anxious for God to send His Messiah and set up the new kingdom. This is what they were looking for, the victory of God and His kingdom reigning in Israel and setting Him up back to where they ought to be, the world power they ought to be, question. When they thought that that was the kingdom, were they right? Right? Yes and no. Yes and no. They they, they were close. They were really close. Uh, It's true. Everything that they thought about God reigning and ruling and setting up a kingdom that will live forever and justice and righteousness and peace and that He was going to bring His people. Now, His people, the definition changes a little bit. He was going to bring His people up to where they ought to be and that there would be victory and everything would be as it was supposed to be again. They were right about that. They were wrong about the way that God was going to do it. They were wrong about the way that He was going to accomplish it. They assumed that what it was going to be, and this is what every Messiah around Jesus' time did, was they came and they amassed together an army. That's what the Messiah does. Like King David, the great war hero, the Messiah who's going to be the son of David is going to come and he's going to lead an army and he's going to slaughter all the Romans and he's going to set us up in power again and in control again. and We're going to have this physical kingdom and he's going to rule on a physical throne and he's going to make everything the way it's supposed to be for Israel again. That was what they thought was going to happen. And that's what makes Mark's gospel and Jesus' ministry so counterintuitive to everything that they knew. So I told you Mark's gospel can be broken up into two movements. First movement is this. The entire first half of the book is built around saying this. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised king. The second half of the book turns in chapter 8. The Messiah must suffer. That's Mark in two sentences. Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah must suffer. Now that is an oxymoron to the Jews, a suffering Messiah. That's not how this works. The the Messiah is, by definition, a winner. He's the one who shows up and beats the bad guys. He doesn't die. He doesn't suffer. And so they can't see that. They can't get that. They don't know how that's going to work, but that's how Jesus does it. He brings the kingdom of God by suffering and dying. So, still, Drew, what, what the heck is it? What is the kingdom of God? Well, it is all those things that we said. It's God ruling and bringing righteousness and justice and peace. But here's a really good hint as to what it is. Matthew 5.10, I mentioned it earlier. It's from a very... Actually, sorry, Matthew 6.10. And it's from the Lord's Prayer. It's one of the first, first lines out of it. Jesus says this, that you pray this first... Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he gives these two ideas and what they are is there are these two prayers and they're parallel phrases. They mean basically the same thing. Your kingdom come and what? Your will be done, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's, here's Drew's sentence definition of the kingdom. The kingdom is anywhere that God's rule is recognized and submitted to. Where things are, and I'm just adding, you don't have to write this part, where things are... The way they were meant to be, where everything is made right, when the sickness and the death and and the evil is all undone, that's where the kingdom of God is. And so the kingdom of God was in the Gospel of Mark everywhere that Jesus went. Literally, where Jesus sits. When Jesus goes into the Jordan River, the kingdom of God is in the Jordan River. When Jesus then moves out into the wilderness, the kingdom of God is in the wilderness. And when Jesus then goes up and He begins His ministry in Galilee, the kingdom of God is there. Everywhere Jesus goes, you start to see... And that's why He does the miracles. That's one of the reasons He does the miracles. It's a demonstration of what God intends and what God is going to do. There's not going to be sickness anymore. There's not going to be demon possession and oppression. The truth is going to be proclaimed. This is the kingdom of God. And here's the crazy thing. Everywhere Jesus went, the kingdom of God was... And then when He dies on a cross and He redeems us and He makes us new, brings us to the Father and then does this, places His Spirit inside of us, that means wherever you go, the kingdom of God is. When you go, when you leave here tonight and you go back into your apartment, doesn't matter what kind of roommate you have, the kingdom of God is in your apartment. That's because that's because you go there and the Spirit goes with you, enables you to live this kind of kingdom life. So the kingdom is with you wherever you go, and this leads us to this question Is your life marked by the kingdom? Does your roommate know when you go back to the apartment that the kingdom of God is there? Like, can they even tell the people in your class? Do they see the kingdom of God? Is is your life marked by that? Here's this, I love this passage. This is Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. For He, that is God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So each and every one of us were brought when we came to know Christ. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Him and you've placed your hope in Him, you were brought into this kingdom. But that means something though. Like if you're brought, a kingdom always has a what? King. King, And everyone always, always, there's not like, you don't pick the days that you do this. Every part of your day is spent in obedience to Him. Like every part of my life, there's no, there's no kingdom I've ever heard of where it's like, well, Sundays is when we really kind of obey the king, and then the rest of the days, you just do whatever you want, you know what I mean? <laughs> like that's, there's no kingdom like that. Sundays and Thursday nights, then we, we show up and we listen to what the king wants from us, but the rest of the time, like no, no, in a kingdom, the king always rules, and you always do what the king says, and that means that every part of your life is owed in allegiance to him. You were brought into his kingdom. He's your king, you do it. Now, the other great news about this, the bad news is, you're terrible at it, okay? Um, that, there's your pep talk for the night. Um, you're terrible at it a lot of times. I'm terrible a lot of times. The, the, the other great news is, is that this whole kingdom that we're built into is rooted... About a, a, in a son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins so even in my failure first of all he gives me a spirit that enables me to strive after holiness in his kingdom and he gives me forgiveness when I fail to do that and that's the beautiful thing about this so last, last thing two minutes here as we apply this stuff the kingdom is, in us, it is, is un, in us it's where we go we have the ability to live it out so are you doing that this is this is our phrase we use for it here at the table. We call it integrated faith. It's where you use every area of your life to glorify God. So, what does that mean? How do I use all of my life? Like, am I supposed to stop school and become a missionary? Do I need to leave, go to like? Am I supposed to be uh, like a nice version of Preacher Bob uh, on the campus? <laughs> Like, nicely shouting at people about nice things, right? Like, what am I, what is that? Does that mean, maybe that means that I, I know a number of students who think this, like, that means that I need to change my major because I'm like an engineer and that's not a very spiritual major, right? Um, I'm not saying it's immoral, okay? I'm just saying it's not a very, like, spiritual major, and I mean, I'm not really helping people, so maybe if I'm really supposed to be glorifying God with my school, with my career, then I need to be like a counselor or or a teacher or something like that. No, no, that's not at all what it means to have integrated faith. It means this, and this is a phrase you're going to hear from us a lot this year, it means simply being faithful where He has you. You ever thought that maybe like the class you go to tomorrow at nine, like maybe that that's not an accident that you're in that class? You ever thought that, like, the club that you're in, engineering club, I don't know, I'm sure that's not a real name of a place, but uh, uh, whatever, any sort of club or extracurricular activity that you're in, ever thought about the, the apartment or the roommates that you have that that might not be an accident? And, and the call on your life as a part of God's kingdom is simply where you are in that place to be faithful with it. Um, some of you are still going, yeah, I still don't know what that means. So I don't know what that looks like. good news is we got a year to talk yeah. about it. And so that's what we're going to be doing through the Gospel of Mark. is talking about what it looks like to live in the kingdom that Jesus set up here on earth. I'm excited about that, and I hope that you guys are too. Um, we're done, but we do have, we're not done done. I mean, we're done listening to me talk. But we will have some food here, and we want to hang out for a little bit. It's nice, so we can kind of get into the parking lot if we need to. So, we're done. Well, yeah, real quick, just one last reminder, listen, if you want to be in a table group, just want to make sure you know this, if you want to be in a table group, you need to be at our 7 o'clock meeting next week before the table. If you can't make it to that, you need to talk to Rachel or Scott or myself, otherwise be there. All right. Break. This guy is... Are-